Hey everyone, welcome to the Future of Work Tech, a podcast where we cover the nexus of new HR trends and the technology that supports them. I'm your host, Alexi Dunaway, and today I'm excited to be joined by Alison Baum-Gates, an author, speaker, and investor in the future of work. Our conversation touches on how the employer-employee relationship is shifting, what investment opportunities are emerging over the next few years, and advice for entrepreneurs and senior HR leaders. Let's get started. Allison, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Why don't you start by giving our listeners a little bit of background about yourself and about Semperverance? Great to be here. I'm Allison Baumgates. I'm a general partner at Semperverance. We are an early stage venture fund focused on companies that sell to and through employers as a distribution strategy, specifically future of work companies within healthcare technology, financial technology, and workforce technology. And can you tell us a little bit more about your investment thesis? Absolutely. Our investment thesis is really anchored in the concept that the fundamental relationship between employers and employees is being disrupted. We believe that the HR function is in the process of becoming more and more strategic, and there is an explosion of data as well as opportunity behind the 80% of budgets that are spent on workforce on average at the company level. So understanding sort of an employee's uh, health, their benefits, their financial wellness, their career development, their trajectory, their goals, all of that has historically been untouched by technology and is now in a position to change and improve as a result of new technology solutions. So I guess... We've been through some cataclysmic shifts recently with COVID and all of the responses that HR has had to do to the pandemic. You spoke about this opening up business opportunities. Can you speak to some that emerged recently? Our thesis at Semperverance and my thesis as an investor, even prior to Semperverance, has always been that the future of work was going to be more digital, distributed, data-driven, dynamic, and diverse. I like alliteration because I have a bad memory. (laughs) (laughs) So started as the 3Ds and then in the middle of the pandemic um, added the dynamic and diverse components. So I think whenever I've talked about the future of work historically, everybody has generally agreed with those tenants. But the question was always the timing. I started talking about the concept of the flipped workplace five years ago. And when the pandemic happened, it accelerated our thesis by years, if not decades. So we've seen the emergence of a lot of really exciting opportunities. One is an urgency on the behalf of the employer to understand what is happening with their employees. Going back to this concept I mentioned before, it's generally been a black box. You hire someone, you generally know how they're doing and how happy they are, but they're mostly Mm -hmm. lagging indicators and performance is a lagging indicator as well. So a big part of what we're doing And the opportunities that we're seeing as a result of remote work are this concept of there's this new trove of data that helps employers understand where their employees are, how they're thinking, what they're working on, how happy they are, how connected they are. All of that is there. It just is up to the employer to understand how to harness and analyze that data in a way that's useful. And what's your take on how that data can best be used? There's obviously a lot of it. Yeah, um, it's interesting. HR historically was a more of a administrative function, but it's now become highly strategic because more of the administrative tasks are being automated. 
And that's true for the HR function itself, but also from a general kind of employment category. We've seen productivity increase over the last 20 years, but wages haven't. And that's largely because people have been performing less of the work that technology has automated away. And so the workforce is performing more strategic functions. HR is trying to figure out how to understand that and analyze that. And when you're not in a pure time-based pay environment, figuring out how well are people actually doing? What are they contributing to the business? So all of that is really exciting, I think, on behalf of the employer to start to gain some more granular data around how people are performing, where they should be investing, and also what people need in order to perform their best. So I think this is a big part of the shift that's occurring right now is moving away from purely quantitative productivity metrics and looking more at, okay, yes, it matters what work someone accomplishes today, but it also matters that this person stays with me for a long time, but they continue to grow. Those are all really important factors that are influenced by preventing burnout, making people feel connected, providing them with mentors, giving them the right healthcare benefits, fertility benefits, mental health care, child care, et cetera. And so I think data can be used to help create a very clear ROI case for employers and providing those type of benefits that will ultimately trickle down to their bottom line, but they might not really have been able to quantify that before. And then on behalf of the employee, I mean, the data is so exciting to be able to get a clear pathway to where you want to be, understanding where your skills are best used, opening up new possibilities. You know, I think we've seen culturally a shift in what people expect to get from work, wanting more mission-based work, wanting to create a portfolio of jobs and experiences and not just climb the ladder at one organization. And so being able to take more con- more control over your own job, career, productivity, et cetera, is a really exciting proposition as well if you know how to do that. And to extend a little bit what you were just talking about, you spoke about how we're now able to pick up new metrics to build that ROI for things that were typically much harder to make the case for. And so for entrepreneurs who are listening or for senior leadership within HR that is making the case to their leadership or to other business functions, How should they be thinking about building that case? Well, data is obviously a really important piece of it, but I think it's also, and this goes back to the question of timing. We as investors, every time we invest in a company, we think about the five T's, right? It's team, technology, TAM, terms, and timing. And timing is arguably the most important one because it's the one that you actually don't have control over in a lot of ways. There's a phrase in Japanese, which is describing this concept, they call it reading the air. And it's kind of getting a sense of which way the wind is blowing. And so one big mistake I see founders make is believing that they've found a very clear case for calculating ROI for their customers. But in fact, the customers never believe those ROI numbers, right? You might launch a pilot with a company and say, look, you know, we started on March 15th and we ran the pilot for three months. And as of the end date, your retention rates have gone up by X percent. Therefore, we have demonstrated our ROI for you. And the company will often say, okay, that's great. But like, I also did these other 15 things during those three months. So how do I know it's really as a result of your pilot? So I think people have to emotionally be bought into the concept of what problem you're solving and the fact that you can have an influencing factor in it. And often that 
emotional response to what you're doing is more important than the ROI. I think it would be hard to have the emotional buy-in without the ROI calculation, but the ROI calculation alone is not usually enough. And when there is that mismatch, how should people think about solving it? It's a great question. I think another piece that's really important is transitioning away from shoulds, especially when we're talking about people. It's easy to fall into this trap of creating this moral obligation, right? Like you should have more diversity at your company. You Mm -hmm. should support women. You should provide these types of benefits. If you think about even ourselves as individuals, there are so many things we should do that we just don't because they don't matter enough for us at that moment. I mean, I shouldn't have just had chocolate after lunch, but I really wanted it and it was delicious. And I know the things that I need to do to be healthy or to lose weight or whatever you're trying to do, but those aren't necessarily the things that determine whether or not you do them that day. So I think reframing ROI, reframing into a, I understand your goals and this is how I'm going to help you reach them as opposed to you should do this because it's the right thing to do. So I want to switch tracks a little bit here and circle back to something you were talking about earlier about how timing is everything. I'm curious, because you see a lot of different companies coming across your desk, what within the HR tech world are we at the tipping point of right now? And what's coming down the pike two or three years down the road? It's an interesting question. One of the areas that we're investing in quite a bit right now is the API-ification of the HR tech stack. We've seen similar trends in fintech, insurtech, and to a certain extent, healthcare tech, although in many ways, they're a little bit behind even where HR tech is. But there's all these really interesting application layer opportunities for automating workflows, helping HR units understand people better. But The first step is actually allowing or unleashing the data, which is currently siloed within the HR tech stack. So you have very different kind of pools of data, whether it's payroll data, healthcare data, employee engagement data, performance data, pay data, all of those things are currently living extremely separately. And so what we think there is a really exciting time for right now is to actually unlock that so the data can be aggregated and turned into something meaningful and sufficiently complex to provide a real picture into the workforce and into workforce health overall. That's one area where we think the timing is right. The technology is there at the infrastructure level. And now it's just a matter of um, unlocking all of that exciting stuff right now. I was just talking to one of my partners earlier today, and we were talking about the fact that we are in the business of being wrong most of the time. <laughs> Fair enough. So, you won't hold um, you to anything, Allison. So you, you can't can't hold me to it. One thing I've been talking about for several years is mental health care and how important that is and how we're in the process of that really going mainstream. We're investors in Spring Health. We're investors in um, PATH. We're investors in Brightline Health. So there's been this real paradigm shift in terms of cultural acceptance and awareness of the fact that mental health is just as important as physical health today. So we've reached a tipping point there. What I'm really interested in is what that trickles into as an extension. Brightline Health is a great example. They're doing behavioral health care for children, um, teens and adolescents. And that's been only really possible because parents have realized that they need to take care of their mental health care. So trying to figure out what are the next 
extensions, what are the next layers of the onion that are going to be peeled back as a result of this real shift in, in mental health? And I think actually women's health is another area where we're seeing a similar tipping point. And this goes back to the data piece as well. Women's health is, is not a straightforward thing. Anybody's health is very complex, but particularly for women, I think there's so many different layers and areas of medicine that have not yet been addressed. And so we're very actively looking into that space and understanding the employer's role within it. I know it's impossible to predict the future, but I'm going to ask anyway. If you had to think three, five years down the road, what problems will be solved? What will still be an issue for employers that entrepreneurs thinking about the future and, and potential business opportunities should be aware of? Yeah, there are a couple different areas. Again, I always go back to this shift between the relationship between the employer and the employee. And, you know, post-World War II in a booming economy, there was this expectation that your employer took care of you. They provided you with healthcare, purpose, and identity with a pension. It was the center of your life, and it was meant to last as long as possible. And that was something that could create a really promising career path, both financially and from an impact and a legacy standpoint. And that is basically gone. And so how does the societal infrastructure around that adapt? How do employers figure out what is their new relationship with employees? But more importantly, I think as individuals navigating the future of work ourselves, what role do we have in pushing that forward and shaping it in a way that works for us? And the gig economy and the emergence of remote and flexible work has been great. And we've seen an, an explosion in new tools that help individuals navigate how to have more of a portfolio career, do more freelance work, be a creator, et cetera. I think employers are still figuring out how to adapt to that. Any employer that you speak to would say, I'd much rather hire someone full time. That's my main focus. I want to hire and keep the people that I choose. And I just think that isn't going to be possible. I'm not exactly sure what the exact timing is where there will be a reckoning where employers are forced to recognize that just isn't realistic to expect your new hires to stay with you for 20 years anymore. And that means that you're going to have to hire teams of freelancers. You're going to have to do more project-based work. You're going to have to share employees with other companies, all of that. I don't think we're quite there yet, to be honest. So I would say at least another three to five years, but that's something I've got my eye on. I'm trying to understand when is there going to be a little bit more of an acceptance of alternative employment arrangements. You write a lot about the flipped workplace. And so maybe this is a really interesting time to bring that in. Yeah, it's a term that I coined a couple of years ago. When I first started investing many years ago, I was investing primarily in ed tech and a lot of technology for the flipped classroom. And the flipped classroom was a movement in education where teachers basically realized that it was a waste of time to have students come into a classroom and force them to learn all at the same pace and then send them home to be alone where they end up asking all their questions, doing their homework and synthesizing what they just learned. So some very intelligent teachers basically said, why don't we reverse this and flip it on its head and have students consume information at home and then only come into the classroom to collaborate, to work together, to be coached essentially. And not only did this allow individual students to learn at their own pace and in their own ways, But it also transformed the role of the teacher from a master of the class and an de facto expert on everything and more to a coach and a facilitator. 
And I think we're seeing the same evolution in work as well. And so my application of that in the work context was a flipped workplace where we as individuals no longer go into an office from nine to five where our presence is equated with productivity, but instead we're able to do our individual work independently in our own place, in our own space, and only come into an office to collaborate with people, to ask questions, to build connections and relationships, to do highly strategic work. And that unlocks so many exciting things. It makes diversity truly possible because people that have different lifestyles or preferences or flexibility requirements, or even some people are morning people and some people are evening people, they can work in the way that works best for them, ultimately yielding better results for everyone. So was really excited about this concept. I think, again, started talking about it. Many people were like, oh, that's a really interesting idea. But there was really no catalyst to shift toward that um, model. And then when the pandemic happened, all of a sudden, we were forced into understanding that, I think, reevaluating the role of an office versus individual work. Now, longer term, what this also means is similar to what happened in the classroom, you know, fundamentally flipping the relationship between employers and employees. I think many people go to work expecting to be told what to do. They expect their employer to provide a career path for them. They expect their employer to tell them this is what success looks like. But actually, that's been flipped on its head. And now that's up to us, which with great power comes great responsibility. And if all of those things are up to you, we really do have to think in a different way. And in the midst of these ongoing shifts of the fundamental relationship between employers and employees, what recommendations or advice might you have for CHROs or senior HR leaders who want to be at the forefront of these ongoing trends? Two big recommendations. One is to join a community of peers that are similarly committed to transformation, evolution, innovation. And so surrounding yourself with people that are thinking in the same way, excited about the same things will keep you moving forward and motivated because there's so much gravity pulling you back to the way things were. So it does take an effort, a shift in mindset and relationships to maintain a commitment to moving forward and innovating and being on the cutting edge. The second piece is try things. I talk to tons of CHROs who say, this is interesting and this is interesting and this is interesting, but get something done. If it doesn't work out, great, but at least you're learning from that. And the best place to be learning and evolving is when you're in action. And, you know, I think it can be hard. Obviously, I think everybody in HR understands the importance of what they do and the fact that you can't just try things willy nilly, but there's an intelligent way to take a lean startup approach, try something small, expand from there. Um, Otherwise, you'll just be sitting on the sidelines forever. And on the other side, for those entrepreneurs who are in the space trying to capitalize on these trends, how would you advise them? Understand your market, talk to your customers, build relationships with CHROs, and try to do so in not in a transactional way, but more in a way of truly trying to gain an understanding of how you can add value to them. You know, ask questions about what problems you can solve, how big are those problems, what are the barriers to those problems having been solved before, being thoughtful and trying to start from a position of adding value versus a sense of entitlement to be able to um, sell something is, is really powerful and goes a long way. Removing the shoulds, right? Exactly, exactly. So as we close here, what are the two to three most exciting startups that you know of in this space for, for people to keep an eye on? 
This, uh, it's so hard. We have a portfolio of more than 40 companies. So I love all my children. <laughs> Choosing amongst is, your children, huh? Is what we, what we like to say. So it's hard for me to just pick a few. I'll talk about a few of our more recent investments that are early, but we're really, really excited about. We just made an investment in a company called Presidio, which has a product called ProCare, leveraging data from multiple sources within the HR tech stack to help HR leaders actually predict up to six months in advance who within their teams are most likely to leave and why. So not only do you get that kind of forecasting ability, but also recommendations for how to prevent it. So we're really excited about that as an application um, of data. I mentioned Brightline Health previously, which is behavioral health care for children, a huge need, something we've heard consistently from both employers and parents everywhere that Mental health has been a huge issue during the pandemic, not only for them, but also for their kids. And Brightline provides clinically validated care that is in network with insurance carriers. So also helps uh, remove that cost barrier, unlock access to healthcare for uh, people that need it most. Thanks so much for joining us, Allison. If you had to leave people with uh, any final message or, or last words, what would it be? Hmm. That's a good one. Yeah, maybe we just go to the theme of this conversation, which is remove the should. Stop thinking about what you should do and start thinking about what you can do, what you will do. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to, to chat and uh, look forward to continuing our conversations. That's all for today. Please subscribe and stay tuned for more conversations with investors, HR practitioners, and entrepreneurs in the future of work ecosystem.